1: now
4: Finally, I said over the weekend that Arizona was still very much in play. This is not an election that everybody should be giving up on because it looks like certain elements of the state government, certainly, Kerry Lake's campaign they are not giving up on it themselves. And this isn't just about Carrie Lake. This is also about Mark Fincham. This is about Abe Hamada. This is about Blake Masters. This is about the disenfranchisement of an entire slate of America First candidates. Now, once again, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Red Pill News. As always, my name is Zach Payne, the Corruption Detector, and I sincerely thank you for choosing to spend your evening with me because we have A lot of news to go over. First of all, we're going to be talking about the latest breaking information in the FTX crypto fraud scandal. That's the same scandal that's connected to both the Democrats and the Republicans, although mostly the Democrats, but it also appears to be connected to both intelligence and big pharma. Then we have some new information that's leaked in the Paul Pelosi-David DePape late night party attack that recently took place in San Francisco. And Elon Musk is making big waves by returning Donald Trump to the Twitter platform. And some people have some big feels about it. That includes the NAACP and also CBS News. And not to be outdone by letting Donald Trump back on the platform, it also appears he has reinstated Project Veritas. And Project Veritas is already making waves with threats of their latest expose, which is sure to make some people at DHS very upset. And then finally, we're going to be taking a look at a report that's come out of the RNC and the lawyers they had on site in Maricopa County with some damning allegations about the types of behavior that took place on Election Day and the failed Dominion Voting Systems equipment, the tabulators that decided to just not process Republican ballots. So do me a favor, sit back, relax and grab your popcorn because we're going to be right back after this. All right, my friends, welcome back, and thank you for sticking around. First of all, we're going to take a look at a report that came out in the last 24 hours from Revolver. Revolver doing some great work. They've been investigating, of course, the FTX scandal, and they've been investigating another cryptocurrency that could have ties to intelligence and drug cartels, as well as, of course, Ukraine, in the exact same way that FTX did. This new cryptocurrency is known as Tether. And Tether is interesting because it's what they call a stable coin. The value of Tether is st- stable because it's tied to the value of the US dollar. So whatever the value of the dollar is, that's the value of a single tether. Now when crypto at FTX was wiped off the books, that was a multi-billion dollar loss right there, tens of billions of dollars. In the case of Tether, If they were to go the same route as FTX, well, then we would be looking at a much larger wipe of value. Currently, they claim to have $68 billion in value related to the amount of Tether that's been minted. Now, why are people worrying about whether or not this is going to happen? Well, in the same way that FTX kind of had some opaque things happening behind the scenes, some creative accounting practices, if you will, well, Tether has no transparency with their accounting practices. They've never been audited. No one has ever been able to look inside the hood of Tether to determine if the way their process is working is actually the way they say it's been working. So this is something that definitely begs a very close look, not only by the people in the financial industry, but also the people in the U.S. government. And one thing that's strange is that the opaque nature of Tether and their practices has been brought up to the U.S. government, to regulators as well, and they decided to absolutely, completely ignore it. Now, how does Tether connect to FTX? Well, it would appear that FTX and Alameda Research were the ones who actually inserted Tether into the crypto ecosystem. If it wasn't for FTX, then it's possible Tether may never have gotten as popular as it did. Now, with no audits on Tether, we don't know if the $68 billion market value is actually pegged to the value of the US dollar. They could very easily just say this to the fund they could very easily make this claim and no one has the ability to determine if it's true or not. So this is a major mess and something that could be really problematic in the very near future. Now, how does Tether connect to the Ukraine? Well, it's deeply invested in Ukraine. It's one of the few cryptocurrencies that the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian army continues to use so that they can keep buying things, so that they can keep supporting their war efforts. It also is a favorite of drug cartels, apparently, because of its supposed backing by the U.S. dollar— And some journalists believe that it is deeply entwined with the clowns in America. Now, considering the nexus of Ukraine, drug trafficking, and this cryptocurrency scam, it seems like the CIA would have their fingers all over it. And when you throw in the idea that U.S. regulators are not exactly worried about the business practices of Tether, well, that draws a lot of questions as well. One reason in particular we should be worried is because there was a company called Tornado Cash. The U.S. government placed sanctions on them because their service allowed for the obfuscation of the transfer of crypto funds. One of the great things about crypto is that it shows you how money is moving from point A to point B. You can match those wallets up to individuals, corporations, or whatever. But with Tornado Cash, those transactions can be completely anonymous. With Tornado Cash being sanctioned by the U.S. government and Tether's usage of Tornado Cash, you would imagine the U.S. government would feel the same way about Tether using it as they did about About tornado cash creating it however they did not care and that right there is a connection that simply cannot be ignored now in regards to ftx specifically it appears they funded an 18 million dollar research effort to cast doubts on the effectiveness of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine now why would a crypto company with interests in foreign conflicts and politics here at home have an interest in helping out the pharmaceutical companies. Well, FTX financed those politicians in elections. They spent millions of dollars to ensure that America First candidates would not be elected and Democrats would continue to be elected. And we know that the pharmaceutical companies that run the United States of America are also deeply invested in those candidates, the same candidates that FTX was busy trying to get back into office. With this research that's been revealed, we now have to ask the question, how deeply involved was that nexus of FTX pharma and politics here at home. So this study they funded on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine made the claim that these two products did not work against COVID. However, after hearing the finding that they didn't work, you take a look at the studies and you find that these particular studies were actually stopped early due to what the researchers called futility. So that means they didn't actually learn how well these two products worked against COVID-19. They just made the assumption that they weren't going to work and they stopped the Studies altogether, And that cost them 18 million dollars, 18 million dollars to ensure that more people died here at home because these two amazing products were not available for their use at hospitals at doctors offices at pharmacies. Once again, this is very similar because it's right along with the Democrat and the deep state agenda and everything they tried to instill during the covid-19 pandemic scam. All right, next on to the attack of Paul Pelosi. Remember that report from NBC News that was uh, so quickly pulled from the Internet and from their website because it appeared to suggest that either a third party opened the door for the police at the Pelosi residence or it was either Paul Pelosi or David DePompe himself. Now, either of those two scenarios draw a lot more questions than they produce answers and it looks like someone who is familiar with the investigation was actually able to get a look at the body camera footage of those police who responded to the Pelosi home and it looks like it was actually Paul Pelosi himself who opened the door and ended up having a short conversation with the police I guess they also spoke with David Depape and then the two gentlemen went back inside the police stepped back I believe they thought that everything was fine, and then out of nowhere, David DePompe starts attacking Paul Pelosi with a hammer, and this is where the proverbial shit really hit the fan. Now the DOJ is covering this up, the San Francisco uh, prosecutor's office has declined to release any of this footage, so as it stands right now, all we really have are the reports from the police and the prosecutor's office, and all of them are not meshing with each other. The story just keeps changing. Nobody wants to tell us exactly what happened, and I wonder if anybody actually knows what true took place, other than perhaps the people who were sending messages into David DePape's head telling him that it was time to attack Paul Pelosi with the hammer now that the police had finally arrived. So that's really all the new information we have about the Paul Pelosi-David DePape situation, and maybe once David DePape actually makes it to court, or perhaps he is deported back to Canada, and maybe he starts talking to reporters, we'll learn more then. All right, next, and just a little bit of word about what's happening in Twitterverse. Now, although I may not be back on the platform, I know a lot of you are and Elon Musk put forth a poll over the weekend asking his followers whether or not Donald Trump should be reinstated. Well, overwhelmingly, it was a yes. People voted to reinstate Donald Trump, even though it looks like at the end there was a major bot attack. Lots of people coming in and saying no. Those were not real accounts because it was an inorganic manner in which the votes came in. But either way, Elon Musk did reinstate Donald Trump, and we get a look at the last few tweets on his account. Uh, some stuff related to January 6th, uh, Donald Trump stating that he was not going to attend the inauguration of Joe Biden, and plenty of classic Trump gold. Now, as a result, we've got a lot of people in the mainstream media and in the woke political intelligentsia who say that they're very upset about Donald Trump back on this platform. One such organization is the NAACP, and they are calling for all advertisers to pull their ads from Twitter. Now, I don't know how many companies have actually done this. But I have to believe that in an effort to keep advertisers on there, Elon and Twitter are probably going to be giving people good deals in the interim. Now, another news organization that claimed they were going to be leaving Twitter was CBS News, and they were gone for a whole 48 hours before they went right back to Twitter and started posting again. It just goes to show you how important Twitter is in getting out a message to the masses. Certainly, Twitter is perfect for political parties. It's perfect for uh, political... Political partisans It's great for News organizations And a lot of people Get their news From a place Like Twitter So they initially said In light of the Uncertainty around Twitter And out of an Abundance of caution CBS News is Pausing its activity On the social media Site as it continues To monitor the Platform Well they brought Donald Trump back The world didn't Explode and Twitter Didn't burn down So here they are They are back And they are posting On the CBS News Official account uh, CBS had claimed that they were going to monitor the situation and instead they were going to be posting on TikTok. TikTok, of course, being the one platform in the United States that's owned by the Chinese Communist Party and was singled out by Donald Trump and a number of other very savvy political leaders as being a massive security risk to anyone here in the United States using it. Again, CBS was perfectly fine using TikTok, and now it looks like they're perfectly fine coming back to Twitter. And then finally, in regards to Twitter stuff, we've got Elon Musk also reinstating Project Veritas. Project Veritas, of course, was kicked off on. Un- unceremoniously back in 2021 because they were reporting the truth on the tech censorship issue that we all know we have a major problem with. And this is one of those reasons why I'm very happy about what Elon Musk is doing over there at Twitter. They had initially claimed that Project Veritas had violated their private information rule, which was essentially an excuse for Twitter to ban them after they exposed Facebook's vice president of integrity, Guy Rosen. Remember, Guy Rosen said that they were going to be ...causing or freezing comments from certain users when their algorithms detected that hate speech may be used... Hate speech? What is hate speech anyways? Of course, Project Veritas also had a rich history prior to their banning of exposing left-wing media outlets like CNN. They've recently exposed a predator teacher in Connecticut, a number of other left-wing woke teachers in Connecticut as well. Project Veritas continuing to do good work. And now that they're back on Twitter, I think they're going to get more attention than ever. All right. And finally, I said over the weekend that Arizona was still very much in play. This is not an election that everybody should be giving up on, because it looks like certain elements of the state government, certainly Carrie Lake's campaign, they are not giving up on it themselves. And this isn't just about Carrie Lake. This is also about Mark Fincham. This is about Abe Hamada. This is about Blake Masters. This is about the disenfranchisement of an entire slate of America First candidates. Now, one thing that I told you many months ago was that a very different thing was going to be taking place in this election. Namely, that the RNC was going to have attorneys at all of these different polling places so that they could evaluate what actually took place on election day. And the RNC had those attorneys in place in Maricopa County all over a number of different
2: Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight.
1: www.fighterflare.com
3: voting centers,
4: and we finally have a report about what they saw on that date. Now, as I said, the counting may be done and the media may have chosen the winner, but there was less than 20,000 ballots between Katie Hobbs and Kerry Lake, and that would mean normally that there would be at least a recount of those ballots. Now, with these ballots being somewhat in question, it should actually be a lot more than just a recount. Now, Kerry Lake, she spent $2 million with her campaign to monitor the count of the votes that took place in the wake of election day and she and her people were going to be ready with lawsuits based upon the facts of what happened. So 40 lawyers at one time were in a central counting room and they had roving attorneys going all over the polling places so that they could check on the vote counting operations. Carrie Lake's chief political strategist, Brady Smith, had this to say. He said, this is the most robust election day operation and post-election operation that Arizona has ever seen. So with regard to those legal challenges undoubtedly coming from Carrie Lake and her campaign, they may rest very heavily upon the findings of those attorneys in place by the RNC on election day. And one such attorney is a man named Mark Soniclar. He was one of those roving attorneys who actually put out a report verifying many of the claims that we heard in the wake of that election there in Maricopa County. For the report Soniclar produced, he put out a request to 16 attorneys who were roving around Maricopa County's 223 polling places that day. And 10 of them responded. And this report details what happened in 115 of those places. In his report, he said 72 of the 115 vote centers, that is 62% we visited, had material problems with the tabulators not being able to tabulate ballots. And that caused voters to either deposit their ballots into box three, spoil their ballots and revote or get frustrated and then leave the voting center without voting at all. He continues in many vote centers, the tabulators rejected the initial insertion of a ballot almost 100 percent of the time, although the tabulators might still accept that ballot on the second, third, fourth, fifth, or even sixth attempt to insert the ballot. So the question is, did these delays and errors end up with a significant impact on Arizona's election. He continues, many ballots were not able to be tabulated by the tabulators at all, no matter how many times the voter inserted the ballot. The percentage of ballots that were not able to be re-read by the tabulators ranged from 5% to 85% at any given time on election day, with the average being somewhere between 25 and 40% failure rates. Again, that is far and above what the Election Assistance Commission labels as a Appropriate. Staneclar also noted in his report that at many of these polling places, the printer and tabulator issues persisted from the beginning of Election Day all the way until the end of Election Day. He was also able to identify what they believe might be the cause of this so-called glitch. The consensus regarding why the tabulators would not read certain ballots was that those ballots in particular, the barcodes on the side of the paper, were not printing dark enough for the tabulators to read them. The findings in this report report contradict the claims of county officials. They said that only 70 polling places had issues and that they were insignificant in the entire scheme of the election. Up to 82 percent, that does not sound insignificant. Now, the other major finding in the report, that 59 of the 115 vote centers they visited, that is 51 percent, in most cases, voters had to wait one to two hours before they received a ballot for voting. Now, what's interesting about Maricopa County, and perhaps this is the reason this was put in place, because it makes it easier for everything to get screwed up. Now, one might ask the question, why did Republican voters seem to have this issue more than Democrat voters? Well, we all know that Republican voters significantly outnumber Democrat voters on Election Day. That's in Maricopa County and in other places around the country. So these voter suppression efforts would necessarily impact impact vote tallies for Republican candidates a lot more than they would for Democrat candidates. But that's not to say these didn't necessarily happen in the Democrat districts as well. We just don't have the reports of it. It seems pretty clear that the printer and tabulator failures on Election Day at 62.61% of the vote centers observed by those 11 roving attorneys and the resulting long lines at a majority of all vote centers led to substantial voter suppression. And that, my friends, is illegal. Remember all of the conversations in Georgia about voter ID laws and how that was voter suppression. Well, when you actually see this stuff taking place on Election Day, this is textbook voter suppression. They did it to Republicans because they didn't want Republicans to vote because they knew that by voting they were going to elect the candidates that these deep state assets behind the scenes did not want to rise to power. Now, the people of Maricopa County are not happy about this. Maricopa County and the Election Commission and their Board of Supervisors have had a meeting since then and the people gave them hell, took them to task, let them know exactly how they felt. Now, it's not just the people of Maricopa County that are upset. The Arizona AG's office also appears to be taking issue with it, and perhaps now that we have such a well-documented issue taking place, a number of well-documented issues taking place that clearly point to illegal activity, maybe this time the Arizona AG Office will go ahead and take care of it. Now, of course, Mark Burnovich is not going to be the Attorney General for very long, but other people in his office are still going to continue their jobs. And one such person is Arizona Assistant Attorney General Jennifer Wright. She's actually with the Elections Integrity Unit. Now, she wrote a letter to the Maricopa County officials that oversaw these elections. It was delivered on Saturday, and she demanded from them an accounting for those widespread ballot tabulation issues and the ballot printer problems that we saw on Election Day. Now, among the many troubling issues that Wright raised in this letter to Maricopa County and specifically directed at Thomas Liddy with the Maricopa County Attorney's Office was the apparent commingling of ballots. There was a black duffel bag in at least one polling location, which included ballots that had been successfully run through the on-site tabulators and mixed in with the ballots that were dropped in door three. These were the ballots that could not be run through and were supposed to get sent to the Elections Department in downtown Phoenix to be tabulated there at the center because they couldn't be read on site. Obviously, that's a problem because you've got ballots that are counted mixed with ballots that aren't counted. And when you get time to count all of them again, how are they expected to separate them? It doesn't seem to me to be a very foolproof system. This looks like it was destined to fail from the very beginning. Now, the Elections Integrity Office at the Arizona Attorney's General's Office has received hundreds of complaints since Election Day, all pertaining to issues related to the administration of this most recent election. Right continued by saying that these complaints go beyond pure speculation, but include first-hand witness accounts that raise concerns regarding Maricopa's lawful compliance with Arizona election law. It would certainly appear that Maricopa County did everything but follow the law on election day. She also said that statements made by Maricopa's Board of Supervisors, Chairman Bill Gates, and County Recorder Stephen Richer, along with other official communications from the county, appeared to confirm that there were, in fact, potential election law violations. We need to get this taken care of before the election is too far gone, and we have another 2020 on our hands. Now, Wright recounted that based on information provided by the county, at least 60 polling locations had ballot on-demand printers that were configured improperly, leading to the inability of the tabulators to read the ballots. Now, on-demand ballots are not a normal thing, but in Maricopa County, you can go to any polling location and cast a ballot, which means they don't have it printed ahead of time. They print it for you when you get there. So you check in at any location in Maricopa County, you ask for your ballot, they print it off and then you get to go ahead and cast it right there. But if the ballot cannot be read by the tabulators, well then you have just been disenfranchised. Wright continued saying that based on sworn complaints submitted by election workers that were employed by Maricopa County, the BOD printers were tested on Monday, November 7th, and they didn't have any problems. So why was it on Tuesday, November 8th, that they suddenly had all of these problems? Despite all of the tests saying that everything was going to go smoothly on the 7th, the printers began malfunctioning within the very first half hour of Election Day. So because of this, the AG's office wants all the logs related to when the printer configuration changes were made, along with other related information. If they worked perfectly fine on Monday, and then suddenly on Tuesday they stop working— In the meantime, did someone change something in the calibration or the configuration to ensure that they wouldn't work for the people who showed up to vote? She also said following widespread reports of problems at voting locations on Election Day, Chairman Gates publicly stated that voters who had already checked into the e-poll book but were having difficulties voting could then check out of that polling location and then they could go to another polling location and vote. But here is the problem. The people who were working in the polling locations, these are sworn affidavits from those employees, they said that they never received any training on how to check people out of that polling location so they could then go someplace else. There was no checkout procedure they knew of. There was no checkout procedure they had been apprised of. And as a result of that, people were then forced to cast a provisional ballot because the e-poll books maintained that the voter had already cast a ballot at another location. So that causes a whole new set of problems. Will that provisional ballot even be counted or is the ballot that is already in the system going to be the one that gets counted? There is no oversight for this stuff. Nobody ever explains it. And it's a massive flaw in the election system and a major security issue for elections going into the future. Now, the attorney general's office also stated that the law was also apparently violated when poll workers failed to keep ballots that were successfully tabulated on-site segregated from those that were not. Maricopa County has actually admitted that in some of these voting locations, the door three non-tabulated ballots were then commingled with previously tabulated ballots at the election center, and that is a violation of the law. So the question now is... Should Maricopa County just trust the results of this election, or should they have another election entirely? That, to me, seems to be the most sensical thing they could choose to do, and that also appears to be what Kerry Lake's campaign is requesting as well, and not just Kerry Lake, and a lot of people in Maricopa County are also requesting a do-over on the election because they don't trust these results. Pursuant to Arizona law, Maricopa County was required to complete reconciliation of ballots against check-ins at the voting locations before leaving the voting location, not to do it at central count. So. By taking those ballots in and then moving them to downtown to count them, they broke the law. The AG's office is now also requesting a copy of each voting location's official ballot report, along with the total number of ballots that were commingled, put together from two different groups into that one single group, and then thrown into that black duffel bag. She is demanding a response to every single issue raised in the letter, no further than November 28th. That's just in a couple of days. That's the date that an official canvas is due to the Arizona Secretary of State Office. At the end of the day, Arizona and Maricopa County screwed the pooch on this election, and I tend to think it was done on purpose. I think the only way we can determine whether or not we have a free and fair election in Maricopa County is to do another election with 100% paper ballots and make sure that everything is followed letter to the law. All right, my friends, that's all I've got for you today. I'm really excited about this report and the response from the Arizona Attorney General's office. This is an election that we have to keep watching. And if you are a resident of Arizona and more specifically Maricopa County, you need to continue to apply the pressure on the elements of the government that can choose to do something about this. If you saw something, you must say something. Fill out an affidavit. Make sure that you get it over to the AG and make sure that everyone knows that the election in Maricopa Copa County was rigged from the very beginning. As always, this has been Red Pill 78. My name is Zach Payne, The Corruption Detector, and this was another edition of Red Pill News. Good luck, everyone, and God bless.